3: Today is Monday, December 16th, 2019, coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Republicans complained, whined, bitched, and moaned about a rigged process in the House for the case of impeachment. But when you have Senator Mitch McConnell saying, Oh, I'm coordinating with the White House, what the hell is that? Yeah, we'll break that thing down. A recent report shows that black mortgage borrowers were charged higher interest rates than white borrowers and were denied mortgages that would have been approved for white applicants. And then you wonder why there's a wealth gap. Africa's economic growth prospects are the top in the world, so why not invest? We'll talk about that. Also, Orlando Jones has been fired from the star series American Gods he says because the showrunner said his character sent the wrong message for Black America. Hmm. And a school resource officer is fired for slamming an 11 year old child to the ground. It's time we get these ridiculous nut cops out of the children's schoolhouses. Plus, a public education forum held this weekend in Pittsburgh aired on MSNBC, with several of the presidential candidates will have our own post discussion. With advocates for charter schools. It's time to bring the funk on roller Martin filter Let's go. He's
2: got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the smooth, the fast.
3: Republicans did when it came to the impeachment inquiry. They were like, oh, this is, the fix is in. And they just, oh, they stormed the the hearing room and they just complained and bitched and moaned and Matt Getz and Collins and all of the whining they did, how unfair this was to Donald Trump. He's gonna get impeached in the House, which now means it goes to a trial in the Senate. And here's what Senator Mitch McConnell, Majority Leader, pretty much says how he's gonna operate. This thing will come to the Senate and it will die
4: quickly and I will do everything I can to make it die quickly. So I think impeachment is going to end quickly in the Senate. I would prefer it to end as quickly as possible. Use the record that was assembled in the House to pass impeachment articles as your trial record. I don't wanna call anybody. I don't need to hear from Hunter Biden. I don't need to hear from Joe Biden. We can deal with that outside of impeachment. I don't want to talk to Pompeo. I don't want to talk to Pence. I want to hear the House make their case based on the record
5: they established in the House, and I want to vote. A lot of people would like to bring up, bring in Adam Schiff, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden. I think I'm more inclined to agree with Senator Graham on this it's tempting and I do believe that that all of those things must be looked into there are a lot of real questions here but I don't know if that would be the appropriate forum once you would have the the 51 votes at that point to end this which again very weak case I think it would be smart to do so where would your inclination be?
6: Yeah. Again, I'm going to take my cues from the from the president's lawyers. But yes, if you, if you know you have the votes, you've listened to the arguments on both sides, and believe the case is so uh, slim, so weak, that you have the votes to end it. Uh, that might be what the president's lawyers would prefer, and you can certainly make a case for making it shorter rather than longer, since it's such a weak case. Hmm. This is the
3: oath that every senator will take before they actually start this trial. I solemnly swear or affirm that in all things appertaining to the trial of, in this case, Donald Trump, now pending, I will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws, so help me God. Hmm, let's let's talk about it. Eugene Craig, CEO, Eugene Craig Organization. Also joining us, Dr. Samantha Ray Dickinson, diversity, inclusion, strategist. Uh, Dr. Cleo Monago, political analyst, behavioral expert, and also j- joining us via Skype, Rod Richardson hosts Disruption Now podcast. Eugene, they're already pretty much saying, damn this, um, we gonna do whatever Donald Trump wants us to do.
7: Yeah, uh, the thing is this, right? You know, Trump doesn't understand any kind of strategy, but, you know, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, who's been through many, many wars time to time over, do. And, uh, you know, they're like, Lindsey's like, listen, we want this to be open and shut because if we bring in witnesses, then they're going to bring in witnesses. And the last thing they want is for John Bolton to get on stand and say, this was a drug deal, <laughs> or for Mick Mulvaney to get on stand and say, yes, there was a quid pro quo, or for Mike Pompeo or, or Vice President Pence or anybody in the Trump administration to come in and actually, under oath, testify to the actual cri- high crimes of this president. Um, I think, you know, the Democrats, I think Schumer is doing the right thing by, you know, openly negotiating with, with uh, Mitch right now. Um, but I think, you know, uh, one of the things I think looking forward, looking forward at impeachment that Democrats probably could do to make this at least somewhat not one-sided partisan is make Justin Amash an impeachment manager. I would love to see that happen.
3: Uh, Rob, uh, bottom line here is, uh, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham have completely sold their souls to Donald Trump.
8: Yeah, they have, and, and, and they, they've decided that Donald Trump is more important than the constitution of the united states they don't care about that oath they don't they don't they don't care i think i think this party can be best described everybody in it right now particularly those who are in office as cowards and traitors that's all they are right now Uh, they are betraying this nation and they said it's more important that we make donald trump look good than to do our job imagine this roland if uh, you're a prosecutor and you say that uh, and you're prosecuting a very serious case someone's for murder fraud robbery let's say robbery okay and you're going to say, before I do anything on my case, I have to consult with the defense attorney. That's not a case. You're, you're basically saying we're going to throw the trial. And they, they they know that the case is strong. They're saying it's weak, but they don't want to have a trial. Why? Because they know it's going to look bad, and they know people are going to have to tell the truth under oath. They're trying to avoid accountability, and they're trying to avoid doing their job and protecting the United States of America. It's shameful.
3: Um, this uh, is clear, Cleo. I mean, Republicans don't want any of this. Uh, and, and, and these two uh, have been uh, the, the biggest cheerleaders for Donald Trump in the United States Senate. And uh, these are the games that they're playing. And so everything the Republicans said up to this point about whole, how unfair and wrong this is goes out the window.
9: Well, Roland, there's an election coming up, an important election for the president of the United States at some point. And, of course, it's quite predictable that the Republicans will say, let's get this over with. Let's get this optical disaster out the way so we can lay way to make sure that we look better than we could look. As everyone said, if everybody came to trial and and exposed everything, they know that's gonna make them look bad. They wanna win the next election. So of course they are going to talk about moving past this because they hoped it wasn't gonna happen in the first place, but they realized because of the democratic power, it can't go away, but they do have enough power to silence it and that's what they're gonna do. But it's interesting, um, this brother mentioned that they're being traitors to the country. But they're... They've, the country voted, not the whole country, but enough, voted Trump into office.
3: So, well, Actually, a majority voted for Hillary Clinton.
9: Right. He won the well, Electoral College. Okay, I'm aware of that, but he didn't get there by two or three votes. He <coughs> got there by corruption along with millions of votes. So my point is that There's people who don't look at Donald Trump as a traitor, but as somebody who's sustaining white control Mm -hmm. and sustaining white power in this country, and they're down for that. Mm -hmm. Anybody who's against that is the traitor from their perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think think it's important to look at all these perspectives because we cannot (laughs) deconstruct insanity (laughs) if we don't look at the strategies behind Mm -hmm. what we consider insanity. These people, I, and also, I'm gonna close with one this. One second, Rob, hold on. I'll close with go this ahead. thought. From my perspective, Trump and company are acting like white men have acted in this country from day one. So, the traitor perspective is based on, in my opinion, a romantic version of how the United States was founded. Samantha right? Yeah. Oh, Rob, one second, go ahead. Oh, sorry, sorry.
10: Go ahead. I would have to agree with Cleo. Cleo, sorry. Um, I think that white supremacy is rooted in, uh, power. And as he just stated, um, avoiding accountability and trying to silence, uh, everyone else will perpetuate that and will allow for white supremacy to continue, and then for the Republicans to continue to win the next race and so on and so forth. And so I'm in agreement in what he just said.
11: Uh,
3: Rob, when you look at what's going on here in terms of uh, these, uh, in terms of how the GOP is operating, uh, again, they know they have a useful idiot in Donald Trump. Yeah. Yes, He so is right. serving a very useful purpose. No They're getting the judges that they want. That's right. Uh, no and so they, they know he's an idiot. Uh, they know he is corrupt, but he gives them pretty much all they want. That's what's really driving, that's why they do not want him to be touched because they need to use him for their own purpose. That's
8: right. I completely agree with that, and I actually agree a lot of what the uh, what the other panelists say. Let me just have a little bit of a different take on some of it, some of it, because I think there's something that Democrats can do more. I think the 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 flaw of Democrat of of the Democratic Party and how and how they go about this and many other things, frankly, is that they think it's just enough to have the uh, to have the high moral ground, like right. the fact that you're doing something that's right, and that's the only thing you need to do, and you just present the facts to the American people, and that's all that's going to matter. That that's unfortunately you need to do more. You need to understand you have to frame the narrative. That's why I said it's, it's important to make sure that people understand he's a traitor and they make it really clear about what he did. So this is beyond uh, I agree about white supremacy how things were there to and, and the founding of the nation. However this is different. We have not had a president just openly go to another nation say I need you to do this for me. And if you don't I'm not going to give you this money and just totally ignore Congress at least not since the last 100 years. We had Andrew Jackson, maybe, when he when he ignored the order from the Supreme Court. But besides for that, over like 150 years ago, we haven't seen someone who just said, I'm going to just make up the rules as I go and completely ignore the rule of law and just, we don't even care about the Constitution as the President of the United States. I'm going to throw it out. We haven't seen that in modern times, and it's being stress-tested. And I think people have to understand... What they're giving up, because you know what they may like the judges that they're getting right now, Roland. But look, if they if they make this a precedent that uh, a precedent for us to go through, then okay. uh, you know it, it was Joe Biden he was going after right now. But then maybe he can use the power of the office uh, of, of taxes, maybe of the IRS, to go after you just because he doesn't like you. Yeah. Basically, you're saying that's okay if you let this go, and no matter if you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, that that is going to affect you if you give a one man unlimited power, which is what we're saying we're doing if we le- if we allow this to go without any accountability. I think Democrats have to lay this out clearly. We're basically saying our Constitution doesn't matter anymore, and we're going to give one man this much power. Our founders <coughs> were not perfect in a lot, but they made it clear that they didn't want kings. I think
9: that the reason behind your perspective makes sense. And you mentioned that Donald Trump has set presidencies, if you will, that have not been done before. But Donald Trump, part of why he was put into place was because there was somebody who was a black man that was also a new president that preceded him. And he had to make up for that. Or white people who were concerned about the myth of their superiority being clearly a joke when it came to intelligence of Obama being in place, they had to make up for that. So we're talking about two presidents, and I'm talking about precedent as opposed to president in a row. And there's a lot of people in this country, even on the Democratic Party side who are white, who agree with Trump's position because his goal is to keep white control intact. And I don't think people care about decency and the issues that you're raising over that agenda.
7: Well, no, Republicans threw out decency the second they nominated Donald Trump. They said, OK, you know, this becomes about winning, it becomes about power. Um, you know, I got my start with a guy named Dan Bongino. to say this one thing all the time, to say politics is a contact sport. You know, at the end of the day, this comes down to literally fighting for power. It's war by civil means. Um, and the thing is that, you know, Democrats, if they play this smart, they have to play it with brute force. They have to play to win. You know, you're not playing, and it's not about moral victories here, it's about actual victories that's here. That's right. You know, that's not, that's not to say Republicans, you know, are, are flawless in what they do, or, or are able to out-strategize Democrats, no, Mitch plays to win. You know, Lindsey plays the win. John Boehner, when his speaker, played the win. Paul Ryan played the win. Mike Pence plays the win. And, yes, Trump is a useful idiot to a lot of these people. He's are getting all the judges they wanted. They're getting all the nominees they wanted. You're seeing things that have never happened before in Department of Interior. I mean, it's, you know, and, and so that's what... That's what they have to lose, and mm-hmm. so that's why Lindsay wants to open and shut case. Otherwise, yep. you know, but Trump, the, the other part of that, Trump wants a very, very open case. Trump, Trump wants a full show trial because that's the person that he is. Right. I mean, he, he wants this to be reality
3: TV. He does. That's what he wants. You know,
7: his but show. it riles up his base.
3: Of course it does. Yep. So what, and again, but what you're dealing with is uh, the Republican Party not caring about the Constitution. All the law and order people, you love hearing them uh, talk. Well, guess what? You know what the truth is when you see how they're acting right now. Got to go to break. We come back. Racism in banking. Such a shock. Really? <laughs> <laughs> You're watching Roller Martin Unfiltered. <laughs> you want to check out Roland Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfilthy. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. As the marijuana momentum continues, our friends at MarijuanaStock.org have already reached more than half of their funding goal for the hemp CBD investment. That's right. If you want to take advantage of this great opportunity, you need to do it now because it won't last much longer. If you don't know, I'm talking about the hemp plant, the good cousin to marijuana with a much higher concentration of CBD. That means hemp gives you all the medical benefits of marijuana without getting you high. Also, hemp farming is now legal in the U.S., creating one of the largest commodities worldwide. It's an incredible investment opportunity. That's where the folks at 420 Real Estate come in. Their business model is very simple. They buy land that supports hemp CBD growth operations and lease it to licensed high-paying tenants. That's right. They are hemp CBD landlords. Now... You could get in on the action uh, by simply joining their crowdfunding campaign and investing as little as 200 bucks, up to $10,000. Again, $200, bucks, up to ten dollars Now, you must do so before the fund is closed. To invest, go to MarijuanaStock.org. That's MarijuanaStock.org. A recent study revealed some huge disparities in how banks deal with black customers. For example, this year, researchers for the National Bureau of Economic Research found that black mortgage borrowers, were ch- charged higher interest rates than white borrowers and were denied mortgages that would have been approved for white applicants. Also, a recent story out of Arizona shows how black folks are treated when it comes to, uh, at banks as well, where you had a, a brother who was a former NFL player who wanted to invest money in private banking uh, with J.P. Morgan Chase, and pretty much, uh, they were like, nah, we're good. Uh, a black banker there, of course, accused the bank of racism as well, now, J.P. Morgan's CEO, Jamie Dimon, is apologizing, saying they must do better when it comes to black customers. Really? <laughs> Joining us right now is America's wealth coach, Deborah Owens. Deborah, when you hear this story, again, we talk about, right now, uh, the, the home ownership of African Americans at its lowest total since 1968. We lost 53% of black wealth due to the home foreclosure crisis because of crap like this.
12: Well, yeah, you know, Every day, uh, a black person reaches out to a financial services institute. And because they perceive they don't have enough or... And that perception is real, as we saw in the case of the NFL player. Now, he had $800,000 of assets already invested with the company. It's as you get to a certain asset level, you should have access to those perks in private banking, which in some cases can give you access to uh, initial public offerings if the company is in the underwriting syndicate. Right. Uh, You get to uh, hobnob with portfolio managers, get different access to different insights. And what's really interesting about this particular um, incident is we would never have known had it not been taped. But this... So imagine... I think what really incensed me, uh, uh, Roland, was the, the woman who had gotten a huge settlement... black
3: woman got a major settlement, 300000 The white banker goes, she didn't earn this.
12: Which is... <laughs> I, <laughs> and said she's
3: going to waste it. You know, she's a welfare... I mean, you're a banker.
12: You like all money. Well, yeah, I mean, you should like all money. So here's the issue, and it's one of the reasons I started Wealthy you Because if you don't have <laughs> basic knowledge about the investment, how the investment markets work, then your assumption is that, you know, you reach a certain income level, you, you do well professionally, just like this NFL player, you have these assets. You would think that... And that's when I have a problem when black folks tell me about, you know, money is green. No, money is not colorblind, right? right? right. Because it's just that as you ascend financially, the racism just becomes more more covert, as we saw. So they, you know, it's racism done politely. And in, in this case, he was not privy to what the gentleman in the office was saying And, you know, my heart goes out to financial advisors who are in this environment and are trying to do the right thing, as this gentleman was trying to do. But unfortunately, because of the um, environment, they aren't able to really be of benefit to their community. But now, it also, there
3: was... but, but also, impact is multiple ways. First, the investment opportunities for the person who's trying to invest. Second, for the black banker, because they can't grow and thrive in the environment. So now you're limiting the opportunities not only for the person trying to trying to invest money or. Uh, the external person, but also the internal person, so we can hit both ways as well. A- and, and-
12: Absolutely. And so it's very difficult for a, a financial advisor then to thrive in this environment because in many cases he can only take <clears throat> on an asset size. In some cases it's 250000 or more or 500000 or more. And so what happens is The person who is trying to grow, I'm just starting out. I'm just, you know, a lot of my money is going to my 401K. I don't have a lot of discretionary income. But certainly as I grow, my assets are going to grow. And I should feel like I could get the benefit of someone who's going to advise me and how to deploy those assets properly. And my frustrations with financial services organizations and I have, have them as, as clients, is this, is that, you know, particularly for African Americans, we're risk-averse. Uh, you know, we grew up, we're savers, we're not investors. If you didn't have someone in your family who could give you access, entree, into this world of investments, you probably didn't have anyone do it. And so we have to grow. Even if, in my own career... Typically, somebody started with $2,500 in a mutual fund, and a year later when they thought, okay, baby, I can trust you, I'm going to show you where the real money is, right, where there's $100,000, $200,000 in assets that they now trust you with, far too many advisors don't even get that opportunity because if someone comes with $2,500 or $10,000, they are not going to meet the minimum, so they're not going to become your client.
3: Cleo, it's very interesting, so... Um, This story here, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon uh, told employees uh, in a memo sent out Friday after the New York Times story ran uh, that, quote, he's disgusted by racism and hate in any form. And, quote, we must make sure that the culture we aspire to reaches every corner of our company. We have done some great work on diversity and inclusion, but it's not enough. We must be absolutely relentless on doing more. Now, Cleo, this is the same company that had to settle a racial discrimination lawsuit. Yeah. Now, I'm sorry, you're the CEO. And I know of <laughs> other companies where CEOs said, let me be clear, you discriminate, your ass is gone.
9: Well, yeah, well, I'm sorry, oh, go, oh, ahead. Clear, go ahead. Mm-hmm. That was a CYA narrative that probably was written by his, his um, ass coverologist <laughs> that works at the bank. And they always, because they wanted customers, despite <laughs> their racism, try to cover themselves. But I have a concern in terms of what you're advising, which I agree with, but these kind of stories also feed into black resistance to trust in the bank and investing because there's racism everywhere, and it's like they're not going to do right by us, as people assume. But another thing that concerns me, and I want to find out what you think we should do about this, Deborah, is that a lot of us feel like a lot of us are surprised when racism, re-surprised when the same old racism jumps up. This ain't new. I mean,
12: no, it's... it's so it's the, what do
9: we do about... Well, how, so, how can we how can we stop being re-surprised by the same old stuff well, so I we can think move? You,
12: I, I think that the issue really becomes this does happen every day. The fact is that this was simply recorded. Right. I know yeah. for a fact. I went into institutions with Wealthy U members and have been taken aback by what? You're not going to help these people. You're not going to do anything. And so I think the real... Uh, the, the remedy for that is for black folks to, because... The, the gatekeepers are gone. Yeah. You know what I mean? You don't have to go through a J.P. Morgan change. Right. And by the yeah. way, yeah. Yep. let's be frank, it's not just them. It's That's endemic right. and systemic yeah. of the industry itself and how how the uh, how the whole monetary system of reward yeah. is set up in the industry. You right. are only going to, now it wasn't, well, back in the day, it was really prevalent because you had to have a certain amount of assets to even get into an investments. Now you've got all these different apps like right. Robinhood, right. Acorn. You yep. can, but the problem is people don't have the fundamental knowledge about how to analyze and research stocks and mutual funds. But the 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 truth is, is it's not that difficult. I'm, and so my remedy for it really is for folks to gain the knowledge that they need so that you don't need someone to escort you anywhere. If you got the right knowledge, you can execute Plus, on it. Plus, you them. also have
3: black financial yeah. advisors. Rob, one second. Exactly. Hold on, Rob. I'm going to Samantha right here. This is what Jamie Dimon writes. We must make sure that the culture we aspire to reaches every corner of our company. We have done some great work on diversity and inclusion, but it's not enough. We must be absolutely relentless on doing more. I've instructed my management team to continually look into our policies, procedures, management practices, and culture to set and achieve the highest possible standards. There's always more we can do. Okay. So I went through this whole letter. This is what the letter did not say. From this point forward, if any employee discriminates against any one of our customers, you will be fired. I'm sorry. The CEO Mm -hmm. has to lay down the gauntlet, especially after you've already settled a race discrimination lawsuit by black employees at Chase.
10: So I think what it comes down to, again, is power and white supremacy. There's a power in keeping people down and discriminating against people. And once you set the tone and put your foot down, then that power gets dismantled and you, you lose your privilege and nobody wants to lose their privilege. So I think that's why he hasn't outright came out and put some po- policies in place and distinctly said whoever crosses these policies or breaks these rules, they, they'll get fired because he'll have a lot of backlash. There are middle managers. That's normally where um, discrimination takes place. Mil- middle managers who hold a certain amount of power that keep those underneath them down. So, if he comes forward and says, if you go against these policies, you'll get fired, then all those minima- middle managers lose their power as well.
3: well yeah, uh, but- hold on, I gotta hey, pull go in Rob. I gotta pull in Rob here. Yeah, yeah. Rob, I'm sorry. Leaders gotta lead. Yeah. No, I, I mean, this was a case, Rob, where the black employee recorded the conversations. Yeah. They tried, this ain't like, oh, he said, she said. No, 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 no. Nice. Got him on audio. Like, dude, you're busted.
8: Yeah, no, don't look, wait. look, uh, leaders should leave, but I am also not surprised. I think he should be held accountable. Right. They should have policy. I don't think it matters <coughs> matter if he did do the policy because as Deborah made it very, very, very clearly stated, this goes on every single day. So one, uh, financial advisors that are at places like this that are black and brown, learn as much as you can, then leave and start your own so you can actually help uh because you're not going to be able to do it in the construct of a uh, jp morgan name the other financial institutions they're all pretty much the same where they all rhyme uh so we actually talked about this on my show we have lots of financial advisors that are black you know we need to also trust our own community so yeah. We're, you know captain america is not coming to save us iron man's not coming that's all for the comic books right we got we're going to have to make sure that we empower ourselves there's lots of knowledge out there there's lots of good apps there's some black owned ones too actually uh solo funds is a, is a is a is a peer-to-peer lending network instead of going to payday lenders you can actually have a peer-to-peer lending network and it's black owned too and so there are things out there that we can do right now and it's actually made already 19 million dollars in loans there are things that can be done uh, that we have power right now, that we don't have to wait on J.P. Morgan and Chase anymore. Mm-hmm. We just have to realize that we have that power because we do have a lot more power than we give ourselves credit for. I, I, can I can
3: Eugene, literally a year ago, J.P. Morgan and Chase settled a lawsuit, $24, $24 million, with six black financial advisors that said they had the bank practice uniform and national in scope discrimination against African-American financial advisors, such as assigning them to poor bank branches... Understaffing them and failing to include them in a program for richer clients—literally. Literally.
12: Huh? Well,
7: so, I'm, well uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. But the thing is, this—you know—it's—it's it's, it's interesting because Jamie's supposed to be one of the better uh, Wall Street bank uh, CEOs and whatnot. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we're looking at the, the gamut of them, um, and so he has to take a stronger stand on this. Um, I think the shareholders of, of J.P. Morgan Chase. Have to take a stronger stance. So I think that's where the real uprising probably has to come. But it's not, you know, the bank's money or Jamie's money being paid out. It's their money's being paid out. Um, and so, you know, but you know, this is once one of the majors take a stronger stance, then the others will follow, and then they'll ripple through the Fed system, hopefully. Um, and like, you know, but I did have a question for Deborah. Go ahead. Good. Um, going back to, to your, your initial story. I know a lot of the banks. They have a you know the private banking typically falls on an investment banking side. Are there any black banks that are do well with private banking or investment banking? I mean, I know a lot of them are smaller community banks and whatnot. But you know, 800000 dollars in assets would do amazing to a bank's you know uh, assets and holding. You know, that's you know, small, smaller size bank.
12: Well, I mean, typically. So, who are the major players in uh, investments? That would be your um, Brown Capital Management out of uh, Baltimore. Uh, That would be John Rogers Aerial Investments. Uh, One of the things I did want to give a shout-out to is the uh, Quad A, which is the African American Financial Advisors Association. I want to really encourage uh, folks who are listening to this program, if you are uh, looking for someone, looking for assistance and you do want to find someone who you feel like you can trust and will have your best interest at heart, I really want to uh, encourage uh, folks to go to Quad A's website, just Google it, African American Financial Advisors, and they have a portal where, depending upon where you live, you can find those financial advisors. You know, the, the and here's the, the only point I want to make is, is this, is that the industry itself is set up yeah. based on servicing people with a certain amount of assets. That is what it is. It's a very difficult environment for uh, black advisors to exceed in because, I mean, if you look at some of the stats, do you know that 20 years ago, the number of (coughs) African-American families with a million dollars or more of net worth, 20 years later, even though... The, the number of white folks' families with uh, net worths of a million dollar more has doubled. Ours has stayed um, uh, flat, if not even a little less than it was 20 years ago. And and the reason, if you delve into that, what you see is so many of our assets are in fixed income investments. You, you, you look at what the market has done over the past 10 years, and so what happens is because we're so... Um, risk-averse, and we're not in those investment uh, vehicles, our money's not growing, okay? And then you see that people are reaching out, they do want their money to grow, and yet when they go and they ask for help, they're not being helped. So at the, you know, at the end of the day, what I would say is that we've got to do business with people who we feel are gonna have our best interests at heart. And it is, in, it, to, to Robert's point, it is up to us, right? Nobody's going to save us, right? And so we have to save ourselves. And saving ourselves means increasing our financial acumen, learning how the markets work. There's nothing, no longer anything, anything to stop anyone from being able to invest on their own, whether you're self-employed or with an employer or you want to invest for your child. You have to be proactive, and begin to make your money grow. Because if not, what we're going to have is just a widening wealth gap, particularly for people of color.
3: Yeah, but but, but the problem, Cleo, that you're dealing with is, I mean, hell, even when you got money, you're still dealing with people like this here. And so, um, you know, it, it, it's finding the folks who are going to treat you with a level of respect. And to Eugene's point, you need corporate leaders <laughs> yeah. to, to, frankly lay down the law and say, I'm sorry, this will not be tolerated, and heads got a roll. Final comment before I go to the next story.
9: Well, not only should we find folks that are more affirming of us, but we should reject and boycott folks who don't. I have money in this institution, and I'm taking it out. And I think we need to boycott and have self-respect because self-respect has a domino effect, I think, towards prosperity as well. And if we look at people who do us wrong and continue to work with them because we're questioning our worth, which is a problem in our community.
12: I, I totally agree then with we, you.
9: It's going to lead us to poverty, not only Got cultural it. poverty, but financial poverty and poverty on a holistic scale. And we need to step up against white supremacy, even when it's at a bank. All right. Deborah Owens, America's Welcome. Thank we, you. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot.
12: Thanks for having me, Robert. Going
3: to a break. We'll just talk about investment in Africa. Up next, Roland Martin and the Filter. YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. Thursday, I leave for Ghana, folks, for a 10-day trip. And uh, that country, uh, they were thinking... Anywhere about about 100,000 folks were going to be traveling there with this year of return. In fact, they've actually processed more than one million visas to Ghana in the year of return. ACON recently talked about African-Americans should be investing in Ghana and other African nations. According to a report by the U.N. Conference on Trade and Development, Africa is the most profitable region in the world. And there are ways that Americans, especially black folks, can tap into that. Joining me now is Franklin Miles, he's founder and director of AWE African Development. Franklin, glad to have you here. Uh what do you make of uh what Akon said, the opportunities for African Americans to invest in Africa?
13: He's absolutely right. I mean, my organization, Awe African Development, specializes in identifying entrepreneurs and opportunities in Africa um, and connecting them with American primary European investors. Um, I think Akon's absolutely right in emphasizing the need for African Americans to get involved in the market. Um at Awe, we help people sort of identify entrepreneurs, uh, companies, and even investment in Africa in, in industries such as telecom, uh, transport, uh, and IT. And so I think it behooves Americans and American government actually to facilitate sort of investments in Africa for business reasons as sort well of strategic reasons. Uh, but is America really doing that? No, it's not. Uh, at least it's far lagging behind, uh, Europe and mainly China. Um, and it's really sad. I mean, China leads with state enterprises and with large uh, governmental-owned companies. But, you know, uh, the, the advantage of America is uh, we're a country of entrepreneurs. We, we celebrate free enterprise. And uh, to that extent, you know, is known to have um, one of the largest set of entrepreneurs in the world. Um, places like Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya have tons of entrepreneurs who are starting companies, and so Americans are really missing out on that sort of cultural connect with entrepreneurs to entrepreneurs, investing in private sector, and so it really is sad that America is sort of falling behind these other major players in the world when it comes to Africa.
3: Uh, one of the things that uh, I saw this video the other day with my man uh, John Hope Bryant, and and he was uh, he was talking about uh, the opportunities that are there. I thought it was quite interesting that he was sharing with people, because uh, he had just gotten back from South Africa. And so go to my iPad, I want to play this here. we go to my iPad.
14: Or uh, well, what can you do for Africa terms? And I want you to do what you can for Africa, but I just got back from South Africa with my family, and I've got a message for you. Africa can do something for you. I'm about to give you two ways for you to benefit financially from Africa. That's right, either income, that's right, income, or wealth here you go number one if uh, you've got your working class you, you've worked your whole life okay you've got um, $25,000 saved up uh, check your uh, retirement plan or whatever program you use yeah if you have $50,000 saved up you're really in good shape all right you got 25 grand saved up 50 grand ideally All right, from your retirement plan for your you know whatever you've been working someplace uh, you got an insurance policy because somebody passed unfortunately in your, in your family, but you got 50 grand and you have a marketable skill I want you to think about going to South Africa Okay, because the grand is 14, 13, you know 12, 13, 14 rand to the dollar Now that's real money. So here's what you do. You go there and you can buy a quarter million dollar $300,000 house and I mean a nice one, okay? For twenty-five thousand dollars cash, uh, I mean a beautiful house. In fact, if you use a little leverage, of a loan, you can buy. Don't overdo it. Don't overdo it. But you can take a twenty-five grand cash, and maybe, maybe because you're a foreigner, they're going to give you a fifty percent loan-to-value loan, or loan, whatever it is. You can get like a half-million-dollar beautiful house in South Africa, uh, and help your brothers and sisters in South Africa, help the economy there. For uh, you know, little or nothing, you own very little debt on it. Number two, you're going to get a job uh, there uh, as a let's, let's say an English instructor, or, or, or you're teaching something because you're let's say you say you're a teacher in Detroit. You're going to go there because teachers are in demand, right? They're going to pay you top dollar, um, and even though it's less than here, it's again 12, 13, 14 ran to the U.S. dollar. So if you've got uh, it's, uh, another 25 grand saved up, so you have 25 grand, all right uh that you put down payment 25 grand saved up uh or you put twenty five thousand dollars in investments there or start a little business or something um and you're working and your cost of living is lower okay simple math is you're going to do extremely well here's how you actually build wealth
3: do well frankly what about that because it,
13: what he's saying is stop just thinking you have to be here think about literally living in the motherland so it's interesting, in South Africa is where I discovered opportunities too. I mean, I lived in South Africa for five years, and it's a beautiful country. And when you go there, you actually see the opportunities. And you know, there are lots of African Americans who live in South Africa too, doing the exact same thing. Um, but number one is uh, he nails on the point that Africa is not just a place you vacation; it's an investment destination, and that's sort of the best way of viewing Africa these days. You know, it's a country, it's, uh, it's a continent. It's a place, you know, that you know has a strive, gets aid. But the best thing you can do for Africa is actually invest. Um, now, if you really want to do things, you can move there, too, because South Africa is a wonderful place to live, um, you know, just financially, but also just in terms of what it has to offer. Um, but the best thing you can do is see Africa as an investment destination. That will do more than anything else to start growth there. Eugene?
7: Uh, are there any crowd uh, funds or that, that uh, target particularly African investments? Uh, or let's just put it this this. What, what would be the, as a 29-year-old, right, mm-hmm. what would be the best way to get involved right now?
13: So I think it's what you're I saying. So like it's... I want a port
7: like China. You want to I want to port. Okay. I want to get the shipping. Oh well,
13: um, <laughs> well half a billion dollars would do you some good. Sure <laughs> yeah. But like bother
7: rolling about it, you got
13: it. <laughs> Right. So the critical thing about Africa is that yeah, um, to to invest in a fund is to find a fund that actually does uh, does, does work there. And there are very few that actually do. And that's one of the things that i always trying to do, is sort of recruit investors, create funds that can actually facilitate that sort of investment. Because okay. uh, it is international capital. Yeah. Um, but you can also move to Africa and have your money sort of, you know, Put into a big account there and invest uh, in small businesses as well. So it might not be a port, yeah. but you know a, a, the thing about Africa is small entrepreneurship too. So you know, a port can go a long ways, but also like you know, like investing in a business in say Nairobi or in Johannesburg or in Accra would go a long ways too. Rob,
8: yeah, yeah. So this is a great conversation. Uh, you know, I I think for our our community, we have to change our mindset. Just like uh, just like Deborah said earlier, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable to really be able to uh, see wealth generated. So I think I think what holds a lot of people back is that, you know, well, how do I just take this step to go to Africa and make investments in a country I don't know about. So that would be my question back to our guest a little bit. What steps would you say if someone says, "Okay, I'm interested. What's the first way to go about uh, investing? And then how do you know the quality of the of of the entity that you're working with, like what should you measure when you're evaluating the investments that you're making in Africa?
13: So one of the things we work with at Alway is first of all, you talk to me. That's as the best way of doing it. Huh? But, <laughs> but what do we do? <laughs> 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 so um, what we do at uh, Alway is we identify sort of. Um, uh, we screen entrepreneurs for the quality of their, uh, of their experience, of their, you know, their biography, basically to see if, are you really good to work with? Yeah. And I work with um, you know, our organizations entirely African-American and African-owned. And in fact, I many of my business partners are from Africa, yeah. and I've known them for several years, so it's easy for me to trust that. Um, and that's one of me the difficult bears in investing in Africa. So you have to have a local partner in terms of investment. You can't just walk into the market and trust anybody. I mean, people have lost money like that all over the world, not just in Africa, in um, sort of pursuing that strategy. So I would encourage you, for whatever means you can, um, is to find a local partner that you can work with. Um, if you don't know the person very well, do some research, ask um, very detailed questions. But it's about finding someone from that market who knows it very well. Um, now, it, and this is Washington D.C. area, so there's a large sort of African community here, D.C. County. And so, is that, I think here it's actually quite easy to find people who are connected to the markets. Is there any, is
8: there any like Better Business Bureau or something something like that? To, I mean, for for Africa, is there something like an overall, just so someone knows, like, if you go to this if you go to this entity, they have they have all. I mean, I, I know it's your organization, but let's say I, there's a collection. Yeah. Is there a collection that says okay? These are the organizations you can trust because they have Got it. They've, they've, they've gone right. through this process. you know that's kind of my question. does that make sense?
13: Yeah, so Department of Commerce, um, they have an African viewer actually where you can go and have resources spe- specifically dedicated to Africa. And even in South Africa if you go there they even have um, resources there for, for people uh, who want to do business in Africa. So there are government provided resources as well. Cleo,
9: real quick. Well first of all Mr. Miles, it's a pleasure to meet you. Excuse I look forward to further conversation. But I'm sitting here in a slight state of shock um, because I'm I'm thinking of the cliche, if you live long enough, you'll see things happen that you never saw before. And I've been going back and forth from Africa, particularly West Africa and South Africa forever, Mm -hmm. and it's been compared to the rest of the population of black people in the country kind of isolating because they don't know what I'm talking about. They have no idea what's there, Mm -hmm. and they have a Tarzan, haven't you know they saw tarzan and they think they know or the lion king yeah and they think they know and they're not really proud compared to the eiffel tower in terms of their mind in this society
15: yeah
9: and i know how beautiful africa is i know what the opportunities are and i'm going to learn more from you i I hope but i'm just in a state of a shock and at the shift Mm -hmm. and all of and and the 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 year of return and Mm -hmm. all this stuff that's happening Mm -hmm. it's just exciting
15: yeah
9: and i know that people are jumping on it and there's more people need to know about the fact that Africa is a beautiful place, it's, it's gorgeous, there's a lot of healthiness there mm-hmm. in terms of the, the nutrition, the ecosystem mm-hmm. and it's not the negativity that a lot of us assume because yeah. some of us are trained to disassociate, I'm sure you, you know that, yes. from Africa yeah. and I really embrace what you're doing because I think it's going to attract people to transform that negative perspective into a positive perspective and invest in it. Real Great. quick, comment?
10: Yes. The first thing, when you mentioned um, moving, to the continent of Africa The first thing I thought about was safety mm-hmm. um, As a black woman And as a millennial We have started going back to the continent And it's become a little bit normalized But moving there seems kind of <laughs>
9: You said moving there <laughs> yeah.
10: It kind of in- yeah. Intimidates me Because I've seen a lot of civil unrest um, he- Heard about the corruption in the government And I just wanted to know if- uh, Are
3: we talking about the United States right now? Okay, that's <laughs> what I-, I was thinking the same thing no, not <laughs> yeah. because the reality mm. is okay. a number of people have, actu- have actually moved there, young folks as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, there was a brother who was a, he was a professor in Chicago who got sick and tired of the violence there, uh, took 30-plus th- thousand dollars. Uh, he's been living there more than a decade. Mm. Uh, there are a number of expatriates. Agama mm. has a huge community yeah. uh, of African-Americans who've been there going back 30, 40 years. And okay. so uh, the more folks hear about these opportunities, it's causing them to say, Wait a minute, hold up. There are places you go to... Like, I was talking to Michelle McKinney Hammond. She says, Roland, I'm going to take you to some places in Ghana that you think that you were sitting here in Beverly Hills or Bel Air. It's very true. Yeah, it's and very since very true.
9: the Ghana doesn't have a police brutality problem, mm-hmm. they don't have no <laughs> no Tamir Rice equivalents yeah. or Michael Brown equivalents. That's it's fair. a quite beautiful and peaceful place, Ghana. Because you see black people all the time. Yeah.
13: Frank, the final comment, real quick. Well, I was going to say, just to get back to you, it's like, every market's different. So Ghana <coughs> actually is... Um, perception-wise, safer than South Africa, even though right. South Africa is a more developed market. Right. But, you know, I lived all over the world, and I've never had a problem living in South Africa. And, no, you don't have to move there, but spend some time there. Spend some time anywhere you, you invest in. Yeah. So, spend six months there, and you'll notice in six months that the opportunities are there. So, I encourage African Americans to really get involved meaningfully in Africa.
3: All right. How do folks reach out to you?
13: Oh, how do they reach you? <laughs> um, so, how do you reach you? AweAfricaDev.com. Say it again? AweAfricaDev.com. A-W-E- africadev.com. All right, we well,
3: appreciate it. Thanks a lot. No problem. All right, folks. Uh, in North Carolina, a school resource officer at Vance County Middle School in Vance County, North Carolina, has been placed on leave after this video blew up on social media. Folks, you see this? I mean, this body slam uh, this child twice. The officer's name has not been released, and of course, the school has apologized. Yeah, but really, what can the, what in the hell can be said, Rob, about how this child is being treated?
8: Well, it's it's been it's awful. Obviously, this 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 officer should obviously be fired, and I think also be prosecuted. Beyond that, though, we have and we've talked about this on this show. We have set a narrative, and we have made it okay to dehumanize our kids. We've we we've, we've created a, a prison to pipeline process that, that really started. In, in, in the 80s and 90s and now we're seeing the devastating effects of that so we need to really we need we need to really put a halt on actually over policing our kids I mean you, you you see this process of starting to just criminalize kids when they're 11 10 five years old and you're already you're already being labeled as a criminal uh, I mean kudos to uh, I think I think it was California that recently just passed uh, that actually said that they're, that they're, that they're gonna stop suspending elementary school students I can speak personally to a story that actually happened to me when I was in high school a student hit me and I pushed him just off of me and they suspended both of us for 10 days that actually set me back and, and I got zeros in uh, for like one half of the semester and then the other half too so uh, because they had that zero tolerance kind of like that three strikes you're out yeah, policy right. they, 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 they applied the same thing to black and brown kids in schools. And you're seeing this play out. And so he dehumanizes our kids. He's one example, but we know there's a system, there's a right. construct that that, 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 continue, that continues to do this, and we need to do everything we can to push back against it.
3: So I have another reason why these cops uh, should not be in schools?
10: That's a loaded question. Immediately when I heard about this story...
3: No, it's not a loaded question. The reality is, these are schools. How, how officers treat people on the streets is different than what happens in schools to see that officer body slam that child, to see the cop who came into the school in South Carolina and physically dragged the black girl's stature out of her desk and turn it over. They are applying standards that take place on the streets to know what's happening in schools. That is nonsensical.
10: Yes, let me clarify. I, the, the simple answer is no. When I heard about this story, I immediately thought about um, post-traumatic slave syndrome. Dr. Joy DeGruy, she has research on that, and she did a quick video um, through one of the main social media uh, uh, websites. I can't remember which one. And that explains how the mentality inflicted on the black community from Jim Crow era and uh, slavery has been per- perpetuated until, up till now. And I think that's what we're seeing here. What Rob said about um, dehumanizing our children and not even viewing black children right. as children, that's what uh, perpetuates this type of behavior. And then you align it with how um, police officers treat black people in general.
3: Cleo, we have no audio of this, but again, to see that level of viciousness, uh, that, I mean this is a huge officer and this small child.
9: The officer is black, right? Appears to be. Yes. He appears to be black. I'm going to just reiterate something I've said many times on the show: was that we have to. It's easier, particularly these days, when people say in white supremacy like it's candy all over the place, mm-hmm. to look at that phenomena, which is monstrous and horrible. But we need to look at the consequences of living in the poison contamination of white supremacy norms for centuries that we've been we've internalized. The white dehumanization of black people, as and and mistaking it for culture or n-word shit. You heard that n-word calling stuff that we, you know, you've heard that word before. you n-word shit? Okay, you look like you all shocked. (laughs) (laughs)
15: No, but uh,
9: this is unfiltered. But anyway, (laughs) and I did say n-word. But anyway, my point is that we need to take a look and at our that we should purge the unresolved and rarely articulated problem of internalized white supremacy. Mm Because a lot of us don't like each other, and it's not necessarily a conscious plan or a conscious thing that we realize. It's unconscious, and it's, it's part of internalizing a norm in this culture. I think it has to do with why we don't boycott, when we have been disrespected, and why some people become cops and do this kind of stuff. It's because even to become a police, you don't have to love yourself as a black person to become a police.
3: Eugene.
7: Uh, this cop needs to be arrested charged tried and convicted that's child abuse that's assault um, there's a lot that went on right there um, I agree with your, your first statement that the cops should not be inside the actual schools maybe outside the schools there is a you know public safety threat that largely surrounds a lot of schools but not physically inside the schools um, but when you have officers like this um, you got to put them. you got you got to convict them and, and and put them in gin pop you know none of, none of the 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 solitary confinement not like that because they need to feel what they inflict mm-hmm. you know they need to feel what they inflict
9: Roland, is there a video of a white child being thrown around like this <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. We, need, know, we, to, might be we crazy crazy need to... to. white
7: people, you might, might mess around and come across one of them. No, well, crazy the, the, the crazy, answers, no. crazy anti-black people. Yeah, yeah,
9: yeah. black people is my concern. Crazy no, no. anti-black black the people. The answer is
3: But the thing is, no. the thing
7: is this, right? But You got you to make sure police officers are convicted and tried and convicted. You got to get... You, know, you can't just walk away with just no, being suspended you're not, you're not, or fine. But we got no, no, to we, we yeah, we gotta you, look at... We got to look at past. too. The DA has to come in and arrest and convict. But you also have to
3: remove these officers from school.
7: I agree 100% with them.
3: Okay? That's what you have to do. You have to have people who are trained to deal with children yep. dealing with children. Yep. Not folks like this. All right, folks. Uh, there's one story here. Orlando Jones has been fired from his role in the Star's original series American Gods. The showrunner said his character, Mr. Nancy, the African trickster deity, Anans- uh, Anansi sent the wrong message for black America with his <laughs> get shit done attitude. <laughs> that's what Orlando said. Do y'all have the video that Orlando... Um, so, go, so, play Orlando's video that he posted on social media explaining him being fired back in September. Okay, we don't have that. That's the video we should have. Okay, hold on. Let me find it. Okay, um, go to my iPad, please. Here it is.
16: 2018. I was fired from American Gods. There will be no more Mr. Nancy. Don't let these motherfuckers tell you they love Mr. Nancy. They don't. I'm not going to name names, but the new season three showrunner is Connecticut-born and Yale-educated, so he's very smart. And he thinks that Mr. Nancy's angry get shit done is the wrong message for black America. That's right. This white man sits in that decision-making chair, and I'm sure he has many black BFFs who are his advisors, and made it clear to him that if they did not get rid of that angry God, Mr. Nancy, he'd start a Denmark VC uprising in this country. I mean, what else could it be? To the wonderful... Neil Gaiman, thank you for allowing me to play this role, for writing this wonderful book, for opening the door for me to become a writer-producer on season two of American Gods. Thank you, sir, to the magnificent Brian Fuller and the incredible uh, Michael Green. Thank you for creating this series and for allowing me also to become uh, Mr. Nancy. I hope the fans enjoyed it because really this is about you. I hope you loved it as much as I loved doing it. And, uh, you know, we see each other again real
3: that was a video that he dropped uh, on uh, social media over the weekend. Uh, the producers say uh, his character was actually moving in a different direction. They were following the storyline of the book, and it wasn't because he was black. But for those, of you, first of all, I don't watch the show.
7: Oh, so so yeah, I can yeah, speak know, on it as a day one fan don't, of America. <laughs> I don't
3: watch the show, but I'm going to play this clip, which yeah. certainly resonates with anybody who watches the show, even those of us who don't watch the show.
7: Third, fourth, then. <laughs>
17: I am not a god, in the sense that I can tolerate exploitation, oppression, and repression. My worshippers know, freedom ain't free. They know the most potent weapon of control for the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. They know slavery is not a condition, slavery is a cult, human trafficking is a cult. Slavery got a rebrand like motherfucking the alt right and snatched. Another one gone. Every 30 seconds, another chocolate brown, caramel yellow, high yellow, red bone refugee girl with melanin in her skin gets snatched. Every 30 seconds. And to make matters worse, these dazzling new plantation owners built a pipeline to take our children from school to prison quicker than a cut can bleed. And the lucky ones go from school to the NFL, where they don't even let them niggas take a knee. They've been programmed from birth with shitty food options, contaminated drinking water, gun violence, police brutality, and trauma after trauma after trauma. PTSD, no therapy. Missing, no Amber Alert. Alone. Vulnerable.
15: Smashed. Another one
16: gone. I hear you brother and
1: i hear them i hear each voice and i write each name
13: we have lived long
0: enough to know these troubles are timeless suffering is not secret
9: and moral law is final sooner or
7: later they all lay before me So that is an amazing um, example of what we got week in, week out from Mr. Nancy. Um, You know, he played a role in the you know broader scheme of old gods versus new gods and whatnot. And I actually think probably the more powerful clip is, is his anger gets shit done. Um, one slave ship on the, you know making his way over, um, but. <clears throat> If what he's saying is true, and I believe him, because I don't think he has any reason to lie to us, I hope the show, you know, dies. You know, fuck it. Um, I was a fan. You know, I'm probably going to watch again, um, because he played a critical role. Um, You know, he played a very, very critical role in defining the show from season one, from episode one.
9: Final comment. I... I had not no, go on, sister. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to say something, too, gummit.
10: After watching the clip, the first thing I thought about was, wow, he's shedding light on the intricacies of institutional racism. Education is the best way to affect change, and those in power don't want those not in power to be educated, so that they can rise up and do something to change the dynamics of how things are. And I think I agree with what um, Orlando said. And like Eugene uh- just said, I hope the show dies as well. Well, I have I yep.
9: never seen this show or heard of it but I've been predicting who in the landscape of media who's black who are going <coughs> to lose their gigs for years and I've been quite Accurate at predicting when I saw certain things that they were going to be removed, and I would have predicted that if I saw this, but I didn't know it existed. The first thing that BET did when Viacom took over was make sure there were no, no news shows, no informational shows that would take black people out of the white supremacy trauma trance. Actually,
3: those hey, bro, shows, no, actually yeah. those shows were canceled. I the I wait, 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 wait! Finish your point, uh, then are going to
9: rob, got to close right, it out. But, but there was, Viacom was owning stuff before the actual. Complete transfer No, no Those
3: new okay, shows well, Were cancelled By Bob Johnson Long before Viacom bought, bought BT okay, Bob yeah. Johnson said The E yep. in BT Stands for entertainment Okay Well we'll yep. argue About that later no, no, I ain't got to argue About it okay. I know it well, <laughs> well, Sheila Johnson His wife who was the co-founder <laughs> Did not even realize It was being cancelled When he cancelled Tavis's show Canceled Canceled uh, Teen Summit He cancelled League right.
9: Story He cancelled those shows Years before Viacom bought it I remember in particular What happened to Tavis And you know I don't want to make us go long. I'm saying Bob Johnson canceled those shows. Okay. White folks didn't. Bob did. Okay. Yep. But, but, Wait a minute.
3: Okay. Yeah, the right. part yeah, about, finish the part. your point. The bo- I, the bottom- look, finish
9: your point. I'm going to Rob and I got to go. Okay. I got to discuss education well, next. The <laughs> bottom line is that when black people like Arsenio Hall and others and Roland Martin to some extent as well say the truth, they want them out of the way, off the landscape and not waking black people up. And this character was doing some things that would wake black people right, up. But remember and that all th- those words are also being written.
7: No, he wrote it's, that himself. No, 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 no. But uh, what I'm
3: saying is, it was written and included in the show. And so we'll see what happens in terms of whether the show continues. Rob, I got to go to you real quick. Go ahead. Go ahead.
8: Yep, I'll be very quick. Look, black people start trends. We have we have to recognize our own value. We don't have to go through mediums. This is why you started your show. It's why I have my show. We can we can control our own narratives, and we should do so. And then we should value the people that All are right. actually putting our voices out there. People like Tyler Perry. People like you.
3: All right, folks, we certainly appreciate it. I got to go. Uh, we got to talk education next. Uh, it was a big forum that took place over the weekend, aired on MSNBC, uh, and I got uh, our own uh, panel coming up to uh, break down that conversation. As next, the Roland Martin Unfiltered.
18: This is Diala Riddle, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered.
10: Stay woke.
8: This is Director X, the director of Superfly on the red carpet, or well, the black carpet, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Yo, what up, y'all? This is Jay Ellis, and you're watching Roland Martin
10: Unfiltered. Hi, I'm Chaley Rose, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. I'm Lex Scott Davis, and you are watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Hey, what's up, y'all? This your boy, Jacob Lattimore, and you're
11: now watching Roland Martin right now. E.
10: Hey everybody, this is Sherry Shepherd. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered, and while he's doing Unfiltered, I'm practicing the wobble, so I am. Because Roland Martin's the one, he will do it backwards, he will do it on the side, he messes everybody up when he gets into the wobble, because he doesn't know how to do it, so he does it backwards, and it messes me up every single time, so I'm working on it. I got it, you got Roland Martin. Hi, my name is LaToya Luckett, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered.
12: What's going on, everybody? It's your boy Mac Wiles, and you are watching Roland Martin Unfiltered.
10: What's up, y'all? It's Ryan Destiny, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered.
12: What up, Lana Well, and you are watching Roland Martin
3: Unfiltered.
18: What's up, this is Aldous Hodge, and you are watching Roland Martin Unfiltered.
10: Hey, everybody, it's your girl Sherry Shepard, and you are watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Hey, Rowan
19: tim story director of shaft you're
9: watching roland martin unfiltered. what up y'all this is method man mighty mutant clan you watching uncle roland martin and the show is unfiltered make sure y'all tune in laura ingram you suck
3: all right well, on saturday msnbc held a public education forum called a uh, public education forum 2020 Equ- equity and opportunity for all in Pittsburgh. It featured seven Democratic presidential candidates, Pete Buttigieg, Michael Bennett, Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, Bernie Sanders, Tom Steyer, and Elizabeth Warren. Cory Booker was scheduled to attend but called out sick. Education unions, students, parents, and civil rights groups had the opportunity to question the candidates about education issues. Here's some of that conversation.
20: Some parents of those black and brown children say, what do I do while I wait for my public school to get up to speed to provide my child with the kind of academic excellence that they deserve. What do you say to those parents who are looking for
21: that public charter school option? So I've met with many parents and grandparents who've put their children in public charter schools and I have no doubt about the sincerity of their efforts to educate their children. And they're looking for the best educational opportunity they can find, I believe that. But I believe that it is our responsibility as a nation and will be my responsibility as President of the United States to make certain that every public school is an excellent public school. Yes,
20: that's future oriented. We've been trying to do that for years. We've been spending billions of dollars in education reform in this country for decades. And we are not there yet in terms of the academic excellence. You know what the nation's report card just came out and said? in terms of our students being able to read in fourth and eighth grade?
21: I'm not proposing cutting funding for children who are currently in charter schools. I believe that for-profit charter schools should be closed, but that's a different issue. I also believe that all charter schools should have to meet exactly the same requirements that all other public schools have to meet. But I can't let you sit here and tell me that we've already put plenty of money into our schools. Oh, I'm not saying we have.
20: I'm not saying we have. I'm saying we have spent billions of dollars. That's a fact. And people are saying we don't have yet the results that we want.
21: People would like to see more money spent. I I understand a billion dollars is a lot of money. Well, that's 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 more than one billion. We have a lot of public schools. And so my proposal is how about we put $800 billion into our public schools and make them all excellent schools. And notice in this, this is about equalizing opportunity. This is the big division in America today. I want to quadruple funding for Title I schools. That's how we create opportunity for our children, as well as fully fund IDEA. We've got to make sure that our children have equal opportunities. And so long as we keep basing funding, mostly on whether or not you live in a neighborhood where they can afford to pay high property taxes or low property taxes, we're gonna keep moving the the opportunities for our children further and further apart. A child born into privilege has great opportunity in this country. I want every child, to have great opportunity in this So you country. have talked about... And I'll put money behind it. Your records come up on the question of desegregation. And in,
20: in this campaign it came up. But the reality right now, right now is that there are a large number of our children who are black and Latino will find themselves in segregated schools. In, ni- in 2016, 42% of Latino students and 40% of black students attended schools where just 10% of their peers were white. Do you consider this a failure Of american education that our schools are segregated and if you consider it a failure how would you fix it
5: two ways to fix it number one so
20: you consider it a failure no
5: look i do think that the fact that we have institutional racism that exists based on neighborhoods based on jobs based on the ability to not be able to live in areas that for financial reasons not just racial reasons in other words It used to be the reason I supported busing the first time around is the de facto segregation. You cannot live in this neighborhood because you're an African-American. That's de facto segregation. But there's de jure segregation. I mean, excuse me, that's de jure segregation, not de facto segregation. De facto segregation exists because of the way of our housing project, excuse me, our housing policies, our educational policies. We should break down school districts and not make sure that their ability to not by definition, exclude minority neighborhoods, but the way to deal with this is to provide for the best education possible in every single school. That's the way to deal with it and then deal with, I started off as a United States Senator fighting redlining. You know what redlining is? I do. That's what I started. The first bills I, in fact, got involved with. And I'm extremely proud of my record on civil rights. That's why I have more people in the African-American community supporting me than anybody else. That's why the President picked me. I make no apologies for my record on civil rights. It's It's good or better than anybody in politics.
20: How has your experience and the experience of American education influenced you as you talk about education and the value of education in America today?
6: Well, it's experienced me in the sense of understanding that many of our kids, especially kids in struggling communities that are often black and Latino, are living in communities where they are dependent on the property tax, but in those neighborhoods, the property tax does not provide the kind of funding that the schools need, which is why I believe we've got to break our dependence on the property tax, something I try to do as mayor Burlington with a little bit of success and make sure that every school district in this country gets the funding they need. And that includes tripling funding for title one schools.
20: Let, it, me, uh, let me ask, what would you do to desegregate schools in America? And do you think that's important?
6: Sure. It's important. I think all of the studies indicate that kids do better in desegregated schools. And one of the things that we will do is actually do the opposite of what Trump is doing. He is cutting funding for the civil rights division, rejecting the complaints about segregated schools and racism within the school system. We will substantially increase funding for the civil rights division.
11: Today, I come to tell you that I never felt safe with police in my school. Since 1994, because of the crime bill, more than $1 billion have been spent on putting police into schools. So Senator Sanders, my question to you is, are you committed to ending the school-to-prison pipeline and and ensuring that black and brown students both feel safe and welcome in their school, and if so,
6: how? Thank you, thank you for that important question. And the answer is absolutely, I am committed. And that is one of my highest priorities. We have a criminal justice system in general, which is not only broken, but it is racist. Yeah. We have more people in jail than any other country on earth, including China, four times our size. So we have a long proposal on criminal justice, but one of the aspects of it is that if you want to keep people out of jail, then you invest in education, you invest in jobs rather than more jails and incarceration. And I will tell you what else we do. What we want, your question is, how do we create an environment where kids feel safe and secure in schools? And that even takes us to the whole issue above and beyond what you're saying of the horrific, and I hate even to talk about these things, the mass shootings we're seeing in schools and elsewhere. We are gonna do everything we can for common sense gun safety legislation. Our gun policy will not be dictated by the NRA. So our goal is, and listen, we are the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. We have the resources not only with teachers, but support staff to make sure that our kids get the attention that they need so they don't drop out of school and get into trouble. And by the way, let me also add, as part of our criminal justice platform, we're gonna end the so-called war on drugs and legalize marijuana in every state of the country.
3: All right, folks, let's have a conversation with uh, some friends of mine, folks who are supporters uh, in the school choice movement. Uh, joining me right now, we have Sean Hartnett, founder and CEO, statesman College, college, preparatory academy for boys public. It's a long title there, (laughs) Sean. Also, Amy Wilkins, SVP, Advocacy, National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. Sharif El-Mekki, Founder, CEO, Center for Black Educator Development. Also joining us via Skype is Dr. Howard Fuller, Founder, Director, Institute for the Transformation of Learning, Marquette University. Dr. Steve Perry, Head of Schools, Capital Preparatory Schools. Dr. Margaret Fortune, CEO of Fortune School in Law in California. And Sarah Carpenter, Executive Director of Memphis Lift. All right. Uh, Sean, I'll start with you. Uh, your, what are your thoughts on the whole uh, conversation this weekend? What you from the candidates on MSNBC?
19: Well, I, 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 I think I would start by saying that, you know, it was it was wonderful to hear uh, so many, one, that this forum happened, that it was about public education and not about something else. Um, And that we had an opportunity to have all of these folks who are running for president stand before us and say, this is what I believe. Um, And I think that what what I continue to be concerned with is a lot of promises. We're going to spend a whole lot of money. Every teacher is going to be rich. We're going to take care of it. It's going to be noble again. Um, And I think that that is what you say when you're running. Um, And I am concerned with the degree to which they will be able to uh, execute on that uh, in office.
3: Um, Margaret Fortune.
22: Well, I got to tell you, I was excited uh, to hear about public education being talked about by the presidential candidates. Um, But then, when I realized that uh, it was an invitation-only type of affair, so a private conversation about public education, I got less excited, particularly when I found out that uh, charter school leaders, charter school parents, those who believe in school reform, were systematically excluded from the form, and and basically, this was an endorsement process Mm -hmm. uh, for the AFT. So I would like to see a much more inclusive discussion about public education, uh, and so I'm glad we have a chance to react to to it today. Amy Wilkins.
23: Um, I, I think I share Margaret's concern, but I think we have to think about when, you know, Tony Morrison told us when people tell us who they are, mm-hmm. we should believe them. Mm-hmm. Right? First
18: time,
23: right? The, you know, when Ronald Reagan announced his presidential campaign in Philadelphia, <coughs> Mississippi, mm-hmm. that said something to all of us. This forum that NEA and AFT organized happened in Pittsburgh, um, where that is the, the town where the life chances of Black people are the worst in the country. Um, you know, black people in in Pittsburgh could move to almost any town in the country and automatically have better education opportunities, more income, better jobs, better housing. The mayor's office released a study back in September that was an embarrassment. And so they chose to cite their event about education in the city where black people suffer the most.
24: And I think that says something.
23: Howard Fuller. Well, first of all, I don't think that that
24: was a forum about public education. I think that was a form about one of the systems mm-hmm. that delivers public education. Mm-hmm. And when people like Elizabeth Warren starts talking, you know I'm not even feeling it just based on the fact that she lied to Sarah when uh, we had that meeting with her in Atlanta. And plus, she's being disingenuous about her concerns around charter schools. Bernie also took a position anti-charter schools. So in my opinion, we shouldn't characterize that as a discussion about public education. We should characterize that as a discussion about the traditional educational system, which does not constitute the totality of public education.
18: Sharif? Listen, I was initially excited um, just to be talking about uh, education in general. When you look at uh, people like Elizabeth Warren, who's running for the highest uh, office in the land, I started teaching the same time she was teaching uh, at University of Pennsylvania. And so for her her uh, skewed vision of what public school uh, and public education is for people that look like me, share my heritage, my uh, cultural background, is vastly different. So when she's up there on stage telling parents, if you don't like your school, just go volunteer. I could have pointed out a whole bunch of schools in West Philly near University of Pennsylvania that she could have uh, walked her behind over and and, and volunteered. She chose not to do that. She put her kid in a school that costs $30,000 a year. And so for someone like that to say that they are championing public education, but they are systematically excluding the voices of black, brown, and native communities about the experiences that they've had for generations in this country is absolutely unacceptable.
4: Steve Perry? That wasn't a conversation about public education. That was a conversation about public employment.
15: Mm -hmm. It's a
4: public employment agency. It's a joke. Saying that you support public education when you send your child to a private school is like saying that you support sleeping outside as a homeless person because you went camping. Elizabeth Warren is a fraud. She's a phony. She's somebody who has no interest in black kids unless, of course, she gives those kids' parents to vote for her. This is not about educating black and Latino kids. It's not even close to it. Saying that you're against the school to prison pipeline as you send children into the schools that send them to prison is disingenuous, Bernie. And so until they are interested in having an honest conversation about systems that have consciously set children ablaze, sending them into the most failed systems this year, We accepted 64 kids into our school in Harlem, into the sixth grade. Of the 64, four could read and do math at grade level. Four, four total. And she's against us? We didn't set them up like that.
11: She did and he did.
3: Sarah Carpenter.
11: Hi, I was very disappointed uh, Saturday when we took 200 people down to the Civic Center to hear people talk about our babies and we were locked out and police I believe they called in the whole Pittsburgh police department <coughs> I mean it was disappointing uh they treated us like criminals and we are parents and so grandparents so Sarah that want what's best for our children
3: so Sarah you said you you and a, a couple of hundred folks uh there y'all want to attend the forum uh or were you outside uh protesting uh, what, what explain exactly what happened for folks who don't know I,
11: actually we tried to get in the forum we tried uh, we tried we marched down there from the hotel we were living in and we tried to get in the forum and they wouldn't let us in they said it was invitation only and i'm standing there like invitation only you talking about our children Mm. so it was like 200 parents and i was disappointed because they shut us out and then they called the police like we was going to do something to somebody we just want to be heard and i think if you run for president it's High time that presidential candidates listen to the people who they want to vote for them. So yeah. That
3: was a, a moment, uh, and anyone could jump in here. That was a moment there when Rahima Ellis was, you know, when she was really questioning Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. Uh and Warren said, you know, uh, don't make that face at me. Uh and 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 what, what Ellis was really saying was what frankly a lot of black folks are saying. You're saying all these great things, but exactly. Uh, what are you going to say to the person who's saying, yo, this has not been working for me uh, uh, my whole life. And and the thing to me is, these candidates say all of these different things without, to me, acknowledging how deeply rooted this problem is and how it goes in so many different areas, not just one simple solution. That, to me, is what is always baffling when it's conversation about education. But
23: But, but bigger than that, Roland, Elizabeth Warren has a basic disrespect for black women. She lied to Sarah. She lied in Sarah's face. She lo- Who would you... I would not use the language she used to Rahima, to anybody but my child. Don't give me that face. What adult would you say that to? Mm. You know, to tell you DIY school reform? You know, you go out there, roll up your sleeves, fix... She didn't say, D-Y-I, fix your colleges. Mm-hmm. D-Y-I, fix your health care. She talks to black women in a horrible way.
3: And the point okay. you're making about Sarah is that when they were in uh, Memphis, when they were uh, actually, um, uh, excuse me, it was in Atlanta, uh, protesting there, when they, when y'all met with her after, she said, when you asked the question, she said that she had enrolled her kids in public schools. In fact, she, she enrolled, I think it was her son, uh, in a private school. Uh, and so, go ahead, Sharif, you want to go ahead?
18: Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, this idea of, there's a long history of affluent and influential white folks, it's, it's like the crux of white supremacy to tell black people to wait. No matter what conditions of your oppression, no matter what you're suffering from, no matter what they're doing to your children and your communities, they tell you to wait. And that they, they know better. And that they know, they you know, it's, it's paternalism, but times a hundred, right? Like, it's like, I know what's best for you, And there's no, let's let's just be clear. There's no, there's not a single person, particularly affluent and influential, who do not believe in school choice. Mm -hmm. They choose their, their children's pre K, they will pay for it, or they'll pay for the mortgage, and so that they have a better educational outcome. They do that incessantly, but yet they tell communities of color that whatever we gave you is best. Whatever we tossed you, and it's not just education, it's across the spectrum. Whatever we toss you is good enough, don't complain, and if you complain, mm-hmm. then there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. You are fighting the democratic uh, situation. How's this democracy? What's the, what's the graduation rate of our, of our youth, mm-hmm. right? But, but well, you're well, like, what's the,
24: the literacy things. rate? Oh, <laughs> I, I, <hold laughs> one second, one second, yeah. one second,
3: hold on, hold on. Howard, Margaret, Steve.
24: Yeah, Roland, I don't... I mean, my thing is is, is fairly simple. Any black person with half a brain knows that if we only got one option for anything in this country, that is not a good thing. (laughs) Elizabeth Warren, when uh, we met with her, said that she was going to put $800 billion into a system that is already systematically failing our children. And she was not going to ask for one structural change. And what was really interesting is, if you follow her conversation, when I pushed back on that, and Sarah pushed back on that, she said, yeah, because Sarah said something about, we fought for money for the Memphis public school system, and then what happened with the money? Elizabeth Warren says, yes, I fought to get, I think she said, $85 million for early childhood education in Massachusetts, and the money went into state government. So she's, on the one hand, she's saying, $800 million will change things, But when I fought for more money for the system, it went into the system, and it didn't change anything. And she sees no contradiction in that. But she's a liar. She's a liar. And she lied to Sarah's face, and she's disingenuous, but yet we, as black people, supposed to accept it, and then she can say to Rahima, like, something about the facial thing that she's making. And we're supposed to buy this? Hell no. Margaret? So, so to
22: me, that, that moment be, uh, between uh, Elizabeth Warren and Rahima Ellis reminded me of Sean Spicer with April Ryan, <laughs> right? <laughs> Telling her in, uh, in that White House briefing room uh, to try and control her face, to control her body. It was that same kind of reaction to a Black woman. And the other thing I thought was striking is, is some of the social media pictures of what happened that day. There was a wall of police that trying to keep Sarahs out, and they were standing under a sign that said "Public Education form. <laughs> but you have this visual of the, of the of the blue keeping out the black people. Meanwhile, you go in inside, and the place is practically empty. So. Because they were having an exclusive forum Mm -hmm. about what they wanted to talk about. I will tell you the one candidate on stage who has credibility on the issue of education was actually Mike Bennett. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated the fact that he went and talked to a group of uh, hundreds of black parents that showed up there to have their voice be heard around school reform. Because of course when he was superintendent of Denver Public Schools, He implemented many of these reforms that have led that school district to be successful now as he's moved on to a career in the Senate. So the the two people in this contest who actually know what they're talking about in this space about reinventing school, reimagining school, because systems that we have now are not working for our most vulnerable children are Mike Bennett, who rarely ever gets the microphone, and Cory Booker, who was sick and couldn't make it, but has finally stepped up to speak to his record mm-hmm. in New Jersey rather than trying to, uh, you know, be in the closet about being a school reformer. And we need to make sure uh, uh, that those guys, even though they're not going to be on the debate stage, continue to have some attention, and it's a value for us to be in, in the race.
3: You know, Steve, this is, to me, is one of those things where, you know, okay, fine, they had this form on MSNBC. There shouldn't be one. I mean, the reality is this is such a huge issue. Uh, There has to be multiple. And I've said this, the reason, Steve, you're not going to hear public education questions come up in these debates, because the people who are asking those questions don't send their kids to public schools. Mm
19: -hmm. That's right. Mm
4: -hmm. They don't have to. You know, what is so troubling for me (sighs) [3] is that we know how this conversation goes. Someone like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders say, I support public education as an applause. They say, I want more money for public education as an applause. And it never gets any deeper than that. Mm-hmm. No one, except for Rahima, who was pushing him, ever says, hey, like uh, Miss Sarah did, do you send your children to public schools? Uh-huh. No, you don't. Neither did uh, 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 do a lot of them. So here's, we, here's where we need to decide what we're going to do. Are we going to keep going to the same people and asking the same questions, knowing what the same answer is going to be? Or are we going to fight to either make them change their position to represent that of the people or change to fight for other politicians? Because these folks have already shown us they have no interest at all in changing anything about it. In 1954, the uh, Supreme Court said that it uh, said that the current system was inherently racist, said the Negro shall forthwith attend the school of his choice. It said it in 1954. School choice is the only strategy that has ever moved any group of any color from the doldrums of poverty to the great shining city on a hill. So we need to make sure that we start we change the narrative from just having a conversation about charters and, and traditional schools to saying we need to fight for school choice among which charters are in I run charters and any other form of school choice that we know our families want because enough is enough.
3: Absolutely. Sh- um, I hear, Sean, and I'm going to go to Sarah as well. Mm-hmm. I, what gets me is when I hear these conversations and I hear money, 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 money. And I sit there and I go, I'm sorry you that you can't simply tell me that money is the answer to it.
19: Well, well, we, we, we certainly know that there have been periods of... One, we should start by saying this. Uh, we need a whole lot more money in public education. We do not have m- enough money to do the kind of work that is necessary, um, the kind of work that all of us would like to do with students who are um, dealing with so much of what many of our students are dealing with. I run a school for boys in, in Ward 7 and 8 here in Washington, D.C. These young men are bringing a lot to school. Um, so yes, we could use a whole lot more money to get that done. At the same time, beyond money, if I am fighting to get a building, if I am fighting with people standing outside saying that I am a private school, like you, that, I, I, that I am a uh, I am, I am privatizing school, and I have members of my community who don't even uh, really fully understand what a public charter school is, that it is a public school in the same way that the traditional school is a public school, Yeah, some of the money will help, but we've got other fish to fry as well. So I just think that we've got to do a much better job of supporting parents to come to understand why the ecosystem of choice that I currently participate here in in Washington, D.C., is a benefit to them and why so many parents wisely have chosen to put their children in schools. That interaction was important because she was saying, what are you going to do about these parents who are tired of waiting? The, the, go and do what you want to do. Give them all the money. Do what you want to do with these other schools. But while you figure all of this out, I'm going to, I'm going to exercise the choice that you all have exercised to put your child in a school that you know works.
3: Uh, Sarah, I'm reading this comment. There's Maria Harmon on my YouTube channel. Charters are not held to the same standards as district public schools, so That's they shouldn't lie. be funded the same. Find another revenue source for charter schools. But here's my deal, Sarah. OK, fine. Remove charters from this conversation. Well, then show me how you have these fairly traditional schools that continue to stay open. And then the answer... Again, the reason I say the money, for me, Sarah, then the answer is, we're going to build a new building. And I'm like, no, it's what's in the building. mm -hmm. Sarah, go ahead.
11: That's what we fight for on a daily basis in Memphis. Our our district-owned buildings that our they leasing out to charter schools and our kids are walking in these buildings it's raining in the building i mean they not even work going in so why, if the school is working and y'all please understand that i'm not pro charter and i'm not anti-charter i'm pro great schools mm-hmm. uh and i think the parents that went with us this weekend we just want great schools on every corner so i mean our kids don't have no more time to wait we live in a city where Dr. King was murdered, and 50 years later, we ask him, where do we go from here? And you want you want parents to fight for more money for schools, and you look on the news and people getting raises. Look at the salaries these people making. Look at this, and our kids still not learning. We gotta know <coughs> who's in the field and who's out here. And I'm just gonna be honest, my grandbaby Cut the ribbon to the second charter school in this city, <coughs> and it, it, I help them accountable just like I hold traditional schools accountable. Mm-hmm. It's a, about accountability. Our kids can't wait no longer each year. Our kids are passing on to another grade, and then when they get to college, they have to take remedial courses. Mm-hmm. You know, so the system is working the way it's supposed to work. It's working the way it was built to work, not for us. That's for sure. And this is, and then when Roll we talk, it. go go ahead. Well, Roland, first of all, let's just
4: address the constant lie. Saying that charter schools are not held to the same standard, the truth in that is we're held to a higher standard. Absolutely. You can't Mm -hmm. shut down a traditional school. We have to go for renewal every five years. And every year, every single part of our organization is checked, not just the finances, but the student performance, how many children are suspended or retained. Every single mark goes against us, if We just performed at the same level as the neighborhood school, despite the fact that we received 60% of the money that they received, 60%. If all we did was perform at the same level than them, we would be shut down. Down. Stop saying that lie. Do a little research and stop regurgitating the foolishness that the unions tell you. The only reason why unions are against charter schools is because we are traditionally non-union. That's it there's nothing else because if unions were so against charter schools for real why did they open one and the one that they opened in new york city why did it get shut down it's because they don't know how to run schools and we are now at a point where we have to hold people accountable our children as miss sarah has said are getting older every single day and when children come to my school the 61 percent of the sixth graders that we i mean the 10th uh, graders that we accepted this year 10th graders that we accepted this year are four grade levels behind, four grade levels. Who did that to them? It wasn't a charter school, and those schools will not be held accountable. No one's gonna lose their job in there. In fact, what the communities will do is build them another building, because there is nothing that says prison like building another large failed school, patting kids down, running their bags, running their pockets, and teaching them nothing.
23: Amy, then, um, uh, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, on. Amy, then Margaret. Amy, go ahead. But I just wanted to disagree with Howard, which I don't generally do, on one small thing. It is not that Elizabeth Warren said, I'm going to put a whole bunch, only put a whole bunch of money in the schools and then do nothing else, right? What she said is, I'm going to eliminate assessment. Um, and assessment is the only tool we have to know whether or not kids are doing well. So it is she's going to put a whole bunch of money mm-hmm. in the public schools and then take out... You know, Steve knows that those kids were four years behind because their assessments that mm-hmm. tell them four years, they're four years behind. Sarah has assessment results to use to hold the schools mm-hmm. in Memphis accountable. Elizabeth Warren wants more money and, less, and accountability. Less, accountability. She, less accountability. Less accountability. So while people are talking about how charter schools are not accountable, which is a lie, Elizabeth Warren is straight-up saying, more money, less accountability for the traditional public school system, and I think
22: that's an important thing for people to Margaret. Understand. And to build on Amy's point, it's also Joe Biden, the front-runner, that is saying that. When he was asked the question, would you support eliminating standardized tests, he said yes. He jumped at it, almost without thinking. So what that would mean is that there would be no basis for me to be able to tell you that 67% of black kids can't do, can't read and write at grade level in California, Mm -hmm. and 79% can't do math at grade level, black kids in California, because we wouldn't have the data to make the observation. So it is always the formula, and this is particularly happening in my home state of California, where the teachers union is in control of the state legislature and of the governor's office, and therefore of the State Board of Education, that their move is to do exactly what Amy is, is talking about, ask for buckets of more money, and also take the teeth out of the accountability system so that you know people generally feel good about their schools, but you actually don't know how well the schools are doing. And in a system where only the charter schools are held accountable for academic performance, that puts these schools at a disadvantage. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. The school next door that has no accountability for results will continue to go on generation after generation, failing black, low-income kids. But the charter school that is serving them will be held to strict accountability. And that is actually <laughs> what we do for all of them. Which is why we listening to a candidate like Mike Bennett, who you, know, you wouldn't even know he was running, right? Somebody who actually ran a school system mm-hmm. with 95,000 students who actually created a system of school choice uh, in which there is a collaboration between district run schools and charter schools, a system in which teachers are held accountable for performance. I wanna know what the people have to say who actually run, have run schools. Uh, And uh, something we keep hearing that I gotta, it's a technical point, but I run Title I schools and we've been hearing presidential candidate after presidential candidate. That they, they're going to raise teacher salaries by putting more money into Title I schools. But for those of us who run schools, we know that Title I money
15: so cannot small. be
22: used to, to supplant existing programs. Mm-hmm. It's supplemental. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't use that money mm-hmm. to add more money to existing teacher salaries because the law doesn't allow for it. Mm-hmm. So we have such a low bar when it comes to education for these presidential candidates that they're not even required to know what they're <laughs> talking about.
18: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, but it's not just them. I mean, whoever they're surrounding themselves with, their policy, you know, gurus, whoever they sit around the table with, don't know. They've been in a bubble their entire lives, and but then they're trying to tell black, brown, and Native people what they want to do. Mm-hmm. I, listen, I'm for all great schools, whatever it is that is mm-hmm. traditional. I was at a traditional school this morning supporting them. I'll support, you know, charter, whatever it is. Absolutely. To, to actually give parents the choice, the options, the, the support to be able to get to their children where they want. The, this money thing i think we need way more money but it has to be with accountability that's right you look at pittsburgh again i going to bounce back to pittsburgh right so they chose to put and randy weingart was actually asked why did you choose pittsburgh you know what she said she said because mr rogers is from here <laughs> so they, they, that's a, pittsburgh has the, like the most oppressive systems and conditions for black families and so you were <laughs> there you have this this uh this summit in Pittsburgh, and you could actually talk, if you actually had ideas, because I didn't hear anything innovative. I didn't hear anything that, that will address the complexity or the nuances of the problem. Mm-hmm. Every time that Ms. Ellis asked a question to kind of shed some light on some of the nuance, they, they you know, pivoted away. But mm-hmm. Rodney Robinson, National Teacher of the Year, when, they, when he asked, Warren pivoted away. They have no answers. They're not surrounded by people. You know why? Because they don't listen to the people. What, what is... a uh, when we talk, Brian Anderson talks about you can't solve problems unless you are addressing the talking to the people engaging the people mm-hmm. in proximity those who people who are closest to the problem they're the ones that can solve it mm-hmm. they are so far removed from the people who are but they'll say, "Listen to black women." I'm, I'm just sick of, I'm sick of slogans. I'm sick of hashtags. Y'all not about that life. Y'all not about black liberation. You're not about educating black children. You can look at any city in this country, and you tell me what's the literacy rate of the black community? What's the and and who you're gonna blame?
15: Mm-hmm.
18: Badass teachers like this national nutcases. It's a national teacher organization across the country. They're championing right now exactly what you just said. We don't want to be held accountable. They, at first I thought they were just going to say student achievement. They said, we don't want to be held accountable for student achievement or student growth. Anything. Then mm-hmm. what the hell are you doing? So right. you just want money. What's your job? You just want money. What
15: are you well, doing? I, I think
3: that if there's one thing, on, I'm, I'm going to go to Steve and I'm going to go to Howard. If there's one thing that I've long said, that the fundamental problem, most organizations, most politicians, most people, is they hate the word accountability. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, and see, this is, so it's funny, like, I'm sitting here, I'm communicating with some people on on um, on YouTube, and this woman's talking about this one charter school in New Orleans where the kids got scammed, and then they had to revoke their, their diplomas. And this is what I said. No, 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 but this is what, but, but see, my position is real clear. I don't support failure. Mm-hmm. My deal is, yeah. if there is a charter that is failing our people, mm-hmm. gotta go. Yep traditional school how many gotta of them go have Private. Scam diplomas gotta go mm-hmm. and I'm like and and, 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 and the thing is when, when I when I see somebody talk about okay this charter in New Orleans yo we could talk about how kids were being graduated who couldn't read before Katrina we could talk on, about man. we could talk about what has happened in Houston
15: mm-hmm.
14: where
3: you've had cheating scandals Atlanta we could talk about what happened in Detroit, some many the different places, Wilmer Hutchins outside of Dallas. The point, the, the the thing I need our people to get to, Steve, is we have to say we're not going to play the game yes. of any one group. Mm-hmm. We're not going to play the NEA, AFT, or the charter game. We want success, mm-hmm. not failure. That, to me, has to be the standard. Steve and Margaret, go ahead. Steve, Howard, and Margaret. Well- So,
4: Roland, one of the things that you've done is you've assembled some of the more successful educators in America. What you've also done is you've assembled some of the most compelling parents in America. You are talking to people who actually do know the answer. We know how to run successful schools, yet we're not part of the presidential conversation because at the end of the day, Our schools are not union because at the end of the day, the parents who are in Miss Sarah's group don't pay union dues and are not white suburban women who are typically the teachers that the teachers union is seeking to protect. (coughs) If there is any interest at all in finding solutions, one would think that you would start with people who are, in fact, successful at sending children to college like we are. 100% of our graduates have gone on a four-year college since we opened our first school in 2005. 100% Black, Latino, largely poor children. So one would think that you'd come to us and say, hey, dog, how y'all doing that? Mm-hmm. But instead, they engage in the, the the epitome of racism. They say that the only way that your schools could be successful is if you did something nefarious to find the only Black, Latino, and poor kids who could learn. Mm-hmm. Similarly. They say the sa- they take that same epitome of racism and cast it upon the backs and faces of mothers and grandmothers like Miss Sarah. They say the only way that you could organize or would organize to go to fight for your children is if wealthy white people made you do it. What is happening here is the people who are supposed to be our friends, these frenemies of ours, these limousine liberals, these progressive, are among the most racist in their presentation of their conversations around education. They are saying that our children can only learn if they are somehow different than the other kids because the people who they've been paying to teach them can't teach them so they can't be taught. And the only way that our parents will stand up is if somebody pays them, if somebody puts a battery in their back. That says more about their racism than it does our children and our fight for
3: freedom. We, we do have to close, so I'm gonna go to each person for their final comment, because uh, we actually over time, but this is not gonna be the last time we have this conversation. Absolutely. Uh, and so, let me go to Howard next, then Margaret, then Sarah.
24: Okay, so thanks, y'all. I'm actually sitting in the Burt Corona Charter School in Los Angeles, because on Thursday, we intend to have a demonstration to show that there is support in black and brown communities for charter schools. And so that's why I'm at the Burt Corona Charter School. This morning I was at the Creek Charter School that people like Elizabeth Warren don't want to exist. 30% of the kids that they serve in are homeless. The point I want to make though, and I think we have to be very careful about this, is we can't fall into the trap of this accountability argument. Because these people are not seriously talking about accountability. They're talking about our destruction. And so I keep reminding people that we need to be careful that we don't become just like the system that we've been trying to escape from, buying into this accountability argument. The reason why charter schools were created was so that we could have something different. And the argument was freedom for accountability. But freedom for accountability doesn't mean We need to look like the traditional system that has Mm -hmm. continued Mm -hmm. to fail our children And so as we make these arguments and i understand why we're saying what we need what what we're saying but what i what i do think is important is that we don't fall in the trap of becoming just like them Mm -hmm. because if we become just like them we will have the same results as they do that's right so Mm -hmm. what we want to do is to create something different for our families and for our children margaret So December
22: 19th, uh, the presidential candidates will be out at it again in Los Angeles with their debate. And the Freedom Coalition for Charter Schools um, will be out demonstrating uh, in Los Angeles to bring home our point December 19th at the Dem 2020 presidential debate in Los Angeles. Um, And the other thing I want to just add to this conversation to build on what Steve said is that if you actually want to solve these policy issues, these schooling issues as it relates to black kids, then you have to talk to the people who know how to do it. And admittedly, they're few and far between. In California, there are 16 public schools that are majority black and in the top half of academic student achievement. That's out of 10,000 schools in the state. There are 16 that are majority black student population. What I'm doing, as the secretary treasurer of California State National Action Network is convening those 16 schools Mm. to download from those leaders, how are you doing what you're doing so that we can share those best practices. And if the system wants to listen, they'll have the opportunity. But we have to amplify the voices of those that know what they're doing in this space.
11: Sarah. I also think we got to amplify the voices of parents who... These babies belong to people. I watch people day after day on platforms talking about our children like it's just just uh, anything. Our babies, and we got... We're not going to ask for permission. We demand the permission. And we not going to, we're going to build our own table. And if you don't invite us, we'll build our own table. And everywhere they show up at, we're going to continue to raise money. And we're going to show up exactly where they show up at. And sooner or later, they'll get it, hopefully. And if they don't, they don't. But, I mean, we're going to keep showing up. Mm -hmm. They are babies, and we're not going to... Our babies don't have no more time to wait on anybody. We don't have time to wait on charter school, traditional school. We want great schools on every corner. Every school in my community was failing, the elementary, middle, and high school. So what we supposed to do, wait? No, sir, we Mm -hmm. will not wait, Mm -hmm. not no longer. We're not going to wait. We're not going to wait.
18: I would just end with saying, like, one, we should remember Malcolm X, he said you know, beware of the foxy white liberal. That's what I saw on that stage in, in Pittsburgh. A Bunch of foxy white liberals talking slick, talking slick to black women, talking slick about uh, students and communities of color. Uh, as an elementary school student, my, my grandparents would say, I didn't, she, they, maternal or paternal did not put their, my parents inside of the neighborhood school. Mm-hmm. They were like, you know what, this idea of saying I have to go to the zip coded school by law, we're not with it. They opted out today in some of those same neighborhoods my grandparents would say don't you put my grandbabies in that school so that means for generations that's insane but what this foxy uh white liberals are trying to slick talk you into believing that something miraculously has changed or will change when we can already see what the pattern is trust the pattern mm-hmm. the pattern says that it's not going to change mm-hmm. but they're going to rely on you to uh to do it and i would say that the long legacy of my parents putting me into an independent black school i think we need far more Independent black schools. If it needs to be a, a, a school that is chartered in order to achieve mm-hmm. that, then so be it. We should do more of it. We need more black people starting schools, leading schools, conscious and conscientious. Mm-hmm. Not like some of these folks that I see that have kind of you know, you know, grabbed on this stuff uh, and just you know drowning in, in, in uh, just delusion. Mm. Uh, the other piece I would say I'm just want to shout out uh, Mama Sarah Carpenter and the rest of those parents have over 250. I was at a protest in the morning, but a bunch of families um, came back that afternoon to to try to get in with Mama Sarah Carpenter. That was uh, me and Ray Anchor. We were representing the Eight Black Hands uh, uh, podcast, and we were so proud of of seeing them, you know, because it's it's this narrative, a false narrative about black families that, oh, they don't care about education. We have always cared about education because we're the only group in this country that risked our lives to teach each other how to read. Mm -hmm. We're the only group in this country that had a death penalty, a death sentence, if we learned how to read or we taught someone how to read. So all this nonsense and that legacy is what we continue to carry. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just really proud of, of, of her and the, the work that we're doing. At the end of the day, we have a long legacy of our families and our ancestors fighting for choice, creating schools, and we need to get back to that, continue that, and don't let any of these jokers say anything but mm-hmm. what we are trying to do. Mm-hmm. Anything other than that is garbage, hot garbage.
15: Yeah.
23: Another shout-out to Sarah um, for those parents and all of the work you guys do every day. But, you know, I I think we hear over and over and over from all these foxy white liberals how much they value black women, how much they value the votes of black women. You know, if you want my vote, hear my voice. Um, And I think we have to keep talking and talking and talking. And don't let them play us cheap. Um, Mm -hmm. We cannot be played chief because, as Sarah says, this is about our babies.
19: Um, I'll say a couple of things. One, uh, I have never met a charter school leader who has wanted to close a traditional school down the street that was good. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Never once. Never once Mm -hmm. heard someone um, in the reform movement decide that a school that is doing well needs to close. Um, If we love black women, listen to black women. Let me tell you something. I listen to those black women. I let them put every single one of their children, they sign up in my school. Every single one of them. Um, We need to pay very close attention to what happens in a community when options are available. It continues to be that these very sophisticated and intelligent black women who have struggled with their children in schools find a way to get their kids in those schools. I think we should listen (laughs) to people as they vote with their feet we should just continue to watch them and we need to continue to ask questions about why they are making these choices. And I cannot thank Margaret Fortune enough for saying what I've been screaming across the city for the last year. Why are we not having the people who are doing this work and doing it well come together to share? Because a good school is going to find its way around all of this bull. If you are killing it for kids, no matter what anybody is saying, they're going to find you're going to find a way to the other side of this. We need to focus our attention on getting schools good, all of them. I have never seen a, pub, a, a traditional public school that was doing well that I wanted to shut down or that I wanted to close or that I wanted to take kids out of. That is not the issue. The issue is there are so many schools where our boys in particular are suffering that we won't have enough room. You probably helped them get
3: to so, into those mm-hmm. schools. So uh, this dude named Phil Sorensen, he tweets me, he says... Teachers assess every day. Roland S. Martin, show, Dr. Fortune claims that standardized tests are our only source of data. She forgets racist origins of these tests. She's showing her private dessert connection. Here's the deal, Phil. <laughs> show me something in America that did not originate with racism. Mm. The nation was built on racism. The Constitution, the Electoral College, 3 fifths black, the education system, the legal system, Wall Street, Corporate America, hell, sports leagues—take your pick. So, if you, being white, want to make the argument that something originated with racist <laughs> origin, <laughs> mm, hell, feel welcome to America. What black people can't do is fall for the okie-doke feel mm-hmm. and to say, "Oh my God, standardized tests started with a racist uh, origin." That's called America. So we're not sitting around going, well, that started because of racism. I told Randy Weingart the same thing on my TV One show when she said charter started by white parents pulling their kids out of school at the Bobby Board of Education. And you know what? I said, well, guess what? That's every damn thing black folks have dealt with in America. Here's the reality. What I care about is whether or not our kids are getting educated. See, here's what I know. There are white parents, white liberals, and white conservatives right now in New York fighting, expanding the gifted and talented programs that are locking black and brown kids out. Mm-hmm. The same folks who probably were at that forum,
15: the same <laughs> yep. folks who
3: probably mm-hmm. watch MSNBC, mm-hmm. who watch CNN, are standing, oh, no, 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 y'all ain't expanding opportunities because they understand. So, on this issue, I don't care if you love traditional schools. I don't care if you love charter schools. My position is clear. I'm down with traditional, charter, magnet, homeschool, online school, parochial, private. I don't care if it's working for the child and the parent. But if you want to say, no, take these things away then we got a problem. Mm. And so I say, Phil, bring your ass to this show. If you want a debate. And anybody else, I welcome AFT. I welcome NEA. I welcome people who oppose the charters who support them. Because all I care about, whether our kids are the ones who get educated, because right now, they're getting screwed. Mm. Next month, we're gonna have a broader conversation uh, dedicated to this issue of public education So, expect us us to do more of this. And trust me, it won't be like on television. There's one form. it will be multiple conversations because this is what matters to our kids. Be sure to support Roller Mark Unfiltered by going to RollerMarkUnfiltered.com join our Bring the Funk fan club. Uh, All that you do supports this show, keeping us independent, keeping us black-owned. We don't have to ask anybody to have these kind of conversations when we want to. That's why it matters having our own vehicles. Yeah, it's called choice as well in media. I'll see you guys tomorrow. Holla! I appreciate it. Thanks a lot.